Hello. Welcome to Almost 30 Podcast. Hello, friends. It's Lynn and Krista. Greetings. We're glad you're here. We're glad you're here. Hope all's well. Um, welcome back to the show for all the OGs that have been listening for a while. And welcome back or welcome to anyone that's new to the pod. We're really grateful you're here. We've been around for about four years and we talk about spirituality and wellness and really just anything to support you in your conscious evolution. It's kind of crazy. It was around this time, five or six years ago, that we started practicing for the podcast. Yes, yeah. In our closets yeah. on the floor. <laughs> we were pra- we practiced this show for seven months before we released it. It was wild. <laughs> you would never know listening we to the first We had a hundred segments. Like we had tons of segments <laughs> at the beginning. We were more dating and relationships at first. Yeah. Like well, we'd I, say our first year was like that. We went for like the quick, not the quick jokes, but it's like, you know, there's just like wacky shit happening in your relationship or like, we talked a lot about like our 20s and just how, how embarrassing they were. (laughs) And I was like so drunk, I was falling off a table. God, literally. Yeah, it was. It was talking about that and just (laughs) the embarrassing, like being a human's embarrassing period. Just like the human experience is so embarrassing. Totally. Do you ever just like pull up and you're just like, wow, if any alien is watching this right now. It's just gross and embarrassing. (laughs) But yeah, that was, that was pretty much it. But yeah, I'm just glad you guys are here. And hopefully, you know, 2021 is proving to be a little bit better than 2020. We're still holding out. <laughs> still holding out. But hopefully, you know, I don't know. I feel like the contrast can show us so many things that we can be mm-hmm. doing better or healing through. And um, if you are new to Almost 30, we do have support, you know, in different ways for you in courses and programs. And we started our membership enrollment will open up again in about six months. But yeah, that's kind of, that's our mission, you know, to really mm-hmm. support you in that evolution. And it's been really beautiful to see see you all uh, take that work seriously. Yeah. Oh my God. That's, that's honestly the best. And, you know, when Lindsay and I were talking about this interview with Dr. Will Cole, before we had it, we did poll our audience and just wanted to make sure you guys felt seen in the conversation and wanted to make sure that we were talking about things that were relevant for not only us, but also for you. Uh, So we talk a lot about hormones in this conversation and there's just a lot of places that we go. But Lindsay and I were talking about our updated (laughs) nightly routines and we wanted to give you guys an update. I think a lot of people talk about the morning routine, uh, how they wake up in their morning. And I think when I really figured out a morning routine years ago, uh, probably when I was living in New York, I really changed my life. But now my focus is my lovely night routine because I feel like I have so much more time at home and more time in the evening to really just seal in my day and make myself feel as like nourished as possible. Mm -hmm. I found that like years ago, my nightly routine was not a routine. It was mainly based on just like rewarding myself for a hard day's work. For sure. (laughs) And so it actually, it didn't have a structure that supported a really good start to the next day. It used to look like having a glass or two of wine, watching, you know, I'm not saying any of this is wrong because I have my nights where I do love to have a glass of wine or watch some Real Housewives, et cetera. But what I noticed that night after night after night, what was happening was like, I don't know. It was like turning off some serious, happy chemicals in my brain. Mm-hmm. I just wasn't feeling good. And so I actually found that more structure and more intentionality in closing out my day really set me up for mm-hmm. like... Yeah. I 
when I stopped drinking, I forgot that alcohol is a depressant. <laughs> and yeah. for someone that has struggled with depression in my life and anxiety at times, I was like, oh, I'm not really helping myself mm-hmm. by drinking or having alcohol. And, and I think we've talked about it before, sort of our journey with alcohol. But I think when we remember that, you know, to, to obviously use alcohol intentionally, but that it is a depressant. So if you're having it every night, you're not really setting yourself up to feel or to sleep happy. well. Oh my God. It's, so it'll put you to bed pretty quickly, but then during the night, you're more apt to wake yes. up and not have really deep, deep sleep. My mom actually, like she'll have a glass of wine every once in a while, but at, lately, I think for three weeks or four weeks now, she hasn't had any anything and she's been sleeping much, much better. So yeah, that was something that I definitely noticed and I'm able, I have like a little tracker where I can track like my heart rate during the night mm. and there is... And it tracks recovery. On a night that I have one glass of wine, my recovery is, I think, like 20% lower. It's pretty crazy. So, And I'll sleep through the night, but you won't realize the quality of sleep that you're getting um, after having alcohol. So, yeah. Wow. Okay. Let's get into the night routine. Let's break down the night routine, baby. And this is nice because I never felt like I really had a night routine, especially when we were building the podcast and I was working a full-time job. It was like just work until bed. And um, I felt exhausted at the end of every single day. So now to have, because of quarantine, a lot more time and space for me to really make my nightly routine what it is, um, I've really been grateful. So I will usually come home from work or whatever we're doing around 6.30, maybe 7, if that's a little bit later. I usually eat dinner around 5. So I've probably had dinner at that point for the most part. And I won't eat after 5 p.m., but I eat really early in the morning. So I usually finish my eating around 5 or 6 p.m. each night just because I'm 100 years old. And I will spend some time with my kitties. I'm going to be honest about that. I will spend a little bit of time with my kitties, which helps me actually in a really profound way, just kind of get in the energy of love. And I think that animals are a beautiful life hack when we do have a pet. It can really allow us and give us permission to get in the frequency of pure love that animals live in. And I really think that the more we're in that beautiful frequency, the more we can create and be and just living in like beautiful alignment. So I spend a lot of time with them. And then I will try my best to do a salt bath once or twice a week. I'll do pure magnesium salt flakes that I get from Thrive Market. And I'll do like just soak in a bath in pitch black, quiet for, you know, 20 to 30 minutes. And I do it pitch black because I want to give my eyes a break, just like a little bit of sensory deprivation from looking at screens all day, from analyzing all day, from being really turned on for most of the day. And then also the silence is really key. So the silence is really important to just help my body recalibrate, to help my mind recalibrate and sort of give me space and time to integrate some of the things I've been going through or think about some of the experiences I've had that day. After that point, I will like lather my whole body in coconut oil and put on a robe. I'm slick 90% of the time. Justin says I'm greasy and slick 90% of the time (laughs) because I'm always covered in oils or like like just oils, whether it's coconut oil from Thrive Market, which you guys can get, or I'll use Osea oil or body lotion. Um, I try and just stay super moisturized if possible. Some nights I'll do a microcurrent. So I have a new face microcurrent device for my face. If I'm feeling really like I want to just kind of sculpt and tone the face, I've been using that for a few years. 
And then after that point, I'll get into bed. If Justin and I aren't playing a game, we've been playing games lately. We, we bought some games online and have been playing games. And if I'm in bed, I'll just be really mindful about my prayer and my thought and intention to bring and call my energy back to me. So through the day, we're going through different experiences and going to different places and seeing different people. And it's really important that we bring all of our energy back to us because it's been in a lot of different places. So I'll do this practice in the evening and I'll also do it in the morning after I've been like in dream world, astral traveling, doing all of that. And just really feeling the physicality of my energy when it's back in my energetic body. And then I'll try my best to run through the day and just sort of think about how I showed up. It's like, okay, how present was I in this situation? How mindful was I of this? Or how did I feel about this person? Or how did I feel about the situation? And just really giving myself time and space to like be the creator of my life by being thoughtful about what I'm doing in each day. And when we go to bed and we don't really think about things, it's like, how can we create change or how can we create a new situation if we don't even know what's going on thoughtfully in our lives? I will then pray after that. I will pray for whatever I'm praying you know, about or whatever conversation I'm having with God at that point. And then lastly, Justin and I will do To Be Magnetic before bed. So we'll do um, the manifestation DEIs together mm-hmm. and just put those on before bed. And those usually put me to sleep, um, which I texted Lacey and they're not supposed to, you're not supposed to sleep during them. So I'm kind of <laughs> kind of not sure what I'm going to do, um, but I'll do usually that or like even a Joe Dispenza or just some mm-hmm. sort of like subconscious reprogramming some nights, but I won't do that always because I don't want to always fall asleep with someone's voice in my ear. Mm-hmm. And usually I'm in bed by nine, 9.30 at the latest and I get up around five. Mm-hmm. Dang, that's a good one. Good one. Take your notes. Okay, so my nighttime routine, uh, as Krista said, we end the day around 6, 6.30, depending. I do, even if I have more work to do, I try to have a big chunk of time where I'm able to really wind down from the day. And I do that by just like, it's either a walk or a shower that just kind of like tells my body and tells my mind like, okay, we are going to transition to this moment. So um, sometimes it's both. I love if it's still light out, taking a walk during dusk and just like walking my neighborhood, nothing fancy, uh, but with nothing in my ears and just kind of like listening to the sounds in the neighborhood, people playing in the park or birds or cars, whatever, just kind of taking it in because I think throughout the day we're on phone calls. I'm hearing a lot of voices. You know, I'm on my phone. I'm hearing stories flip through, you know, Mm -hmm. like things like that where it is so jarring. And so I just want to take in like whatever is naturally going on around me. And then I'll come back home. And um, if I'm just feeling really like I'm going to give myself a lot of time to wind down, I hop in our clear light sauna, which we have in the studio. And this is just like, for me, a really powerful way to not only like disconnect because I don't generally bring my phone in there unless I'm playing either binaural beats through there um, because it has like a, a stereo system or another type of meditation music but to really just disconnect because I think it's easy to like hop into something like a sauna and be like, oh, I'm going to answer emails or I'm going to answer DMs. And uh, I really try to resist doing that because also it will fry your phone if you're in there. <laughs> but this, this is where I do a lot of my journaling. And so I just kind of feel like I'm in a little pod where I'm cut off from the outside world and I'm able 
you know, we we talked about channeling on a separate episode, but that's like really where I feel super, super connected. And maybe it's the heat just kind of drawing out the toxins and just kind of like quieting the mind and the body. And so I'll just journal, whether it's like to my soul or if I just have like some lingering thoughts from the day, um, that's where I'll do it. And then after that, I'll take a shower. I usually take at least two showers a day. That's about average. And they're quick showers, but I really need... Water has been really powerful for me lately to um, use as like a cord cutting. Mm-hmm. So especially at the end of a day, like the other night, we had just a beautiful call with our members and the membership. And I knew, I'm like, okay, we need to like cut the cords mm-hmm. because as positive as they are and how nourishing as they are, it is important that at the end of the day, I am disconnecting from those individuals so that I can just like really rich, like recharge in a powerful way. So I hop in the shower and I'm really just energetically, intentionally seeing the cords just kind of like wash away. Um, And it's simply an intention. You know, I think a lot of people and even myself, when I was learning about cord cutting and I was talking to my therapist about it, she's like, it's really just your intention. Like it is that powerful. So um, don't worry about doing it right or wrong. Like your intention is is all you need. So I'll do that. I'll usually sing in the shower. Um, and that for me is also another way of just channeling. And it's it's crazy. I'm sure a lot of people relate to this in a shower. You're there having thoughts or saying things out loud or maybe singing and you step outside of the shower and you're like, where did it go? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're like, where did that thought go? I had a really good idea. You know, it's it's just so powerful. Like I love singing in there and almost like writing in there, not on paper, but just like writing lyrics um, in my head. And then I will get in my cozies, my comfies. I'll do my whole skincare routine, really take time to do that and oil myself up as well. Just feel really moisturized and hydrated, get in my robe or my big ass sweatpants. Um, And then it's usually time to connect with Sean because he's three hours ahead. So we'll do either a FaceTime or just a phone call. Um, And there are some nights that we don't talk because either he's really good with boundaries. He's like, listen, I'm too tired. I don't want to talk. And I'm like, all good. And some, some nights... If that happens, I'll... Because like there's usually something that I either want to express to him, even if it's just like a sentence or a word or whatever, but I'll email him so that when he wakes up, like he has something to to read. Um, and I just like with him, he's such a lover and a writer and like that wasn't me mm-hmm. at all. But it's kind of fun to like use your words in that way in writing and just kind of have that also as something that you can look back on it's kind of fun. So yeah, we'll have our connection time. And I shared this yesterday on my story, but we'll ask each other one question when we connect. So we'll have our like catch up for the day, but then end with either high, low, and what are you grateful for? Or we'll ask each other a question. So it can sound cheesy, but I think like just giving yourself permission to do that with either a partner or a friend, especially if it's long distance, is really fun. And it can teach you a lot about that person. And then like I have the night to myself. So it just depends. Like there are nights when I don't want to do any more work and I'm really like shutting down, but then I'm really inspired sometimes. Like after I've taken a few hours to take care of myself, I'm like, oh, I want to write that newsletter that I have due later in the week. Let me do that. So it just depends. I really like trust what my body is telling me. And I'll also, I I usually have dinner um, around 6.37 and I'll either cook. Um, I love to cook, but I don't always have time. So I'll either cook 
or I'll have like something prepackaged from Erwan or um, I'll order something yummy. Um, and I'll have my FX chocolate, mm-hmm. little piece of FX, baby. Um, it's a car for dinner, FX for dessert. Yeah, it's the best. Ooh. So, and yeah, I haven't, it's really, it's really funny. Like, yeah, I, I used to be like a late night eater, big time big time. Mm-hmm. And that's subsided. And I wonder if it's because I'm like taking better care of myself later. Like as I like kind of wind down, you know, I feel like that late night eating was a reward. It was like, you're, you know, reward yourself for the hard work and all the things that you've done today. And like, I think that wind down is like, for me, really powerful. The shower, the sauna, the this, the that, to just remind me like, okay, I'm taking care of you. Like you're good. Um, so the, those like hunger pangs have kind of subsided late at night. Um, then I'll just make sure I I hydrate as much as possible. I'll meditate before bed. I put on like, um, I have a meditation playlist that I put on and I just, within that meditation, I'll pray as well and um, just get into my heart and um, just asking to like work in my dreams a little bit more, mm-hmm. like slowly but surely. My dreams have been really busy lately, which is annoying. Mm-hmm. Because I think like we have a lot on our to-do list. So I'm like, okay, can I just use my dreams for other things? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Totally>. <laughs> so I'm just trying to ask for that and ask my guides and um, angels and ancestors to kind of like come in and facilitate that. I'll clear the space and with a bell that I have and also just any like herbs that I want to burn or mm-hmm. things like that. Um, because I live on a very busy street. So I just want to kind of protect myself. And then I go to bed. I get at least eight hours a night. At least. At least. Dude. Sean laughs. He's like, what? He's cool like, New York-y. Literally, That's so New York. He's like, I got five and a half hours. I'm like, Dude. I would be ill. I literally would be ill. That's so New York. He definitely needs less sleep than me. Uh-huh. But I, I, I am unwell if I get What's less everyone than doing? seven and a half. What's everyone doing that's not sleeping eight hours? <laughs> Do you know? know? I'm like. Getting after it. Yeah, and getting after what? <laughs> I'm getting after this rest, baby. Yeah, man. That was beautiful. Thank you so much. Thanks, okay. Y'all. Now that we shared our beautiful nightly routines, want to get into this episode with yes. Dr. Will Cole. And just again, so a lot of the questions we sourced from you guys, because we wanted to make sure this was as impactful for you as it was for us. Um, We talked about hormone health quite a bit. We talked about PCOS. Mm -hmm. Um, We talked about functional medicine. We talked about um, intuitive fasting, what that means, Mm -hmm. um, and what fasting can do for us when we do it, you know, thoughtfully and mindfully. Yes. His book, Intuitive Fasting, is out now. So you can go to his website, drwillcole.com to grab it. Um, This is giving you a flexible four-week intermittent fasting plan, um, which is great to recharge your metabolism and renew your health. He's a wealth of information. And I think you guys are really going to love this. Yeah, I'm really excited. So if you have a friend that's interested in health, wellness, and all the things, this is a great episode to pass along to them. I think these episodes, you know, we all can relate to so much of the information and conversation. And it's always nice to share with a friend. Amen, baby. Amen. All right. Last bit of news from Almost 30. So almost30.com is new and improved. We have a new site and user experience, which is really beautiful. And we moved all of our courses and programs over to a new platform called Kajabi. So if you're interested in Podcast Pro, maybe you want to launch a podcast, maybe you want to grow it or monetize it, we have our entire program over on Kajabi. And then we have all of our courses, programs, and downloadables 
there as well. So for anyone that's interested in any of the work that we do, getting a little bit further, digging a little bit further in, um, you can go to almost30.com. Thank you all for listening. Enjoy this one and we'll see you on the other side. We'll see you soon. Um, Thank you so much for joining. We're really looking forward to digging in with you. Whenever I get the chance to talk about hormones or hormone health, I feel like it is one of the most impactful topics since awakening to the understanding of my hormones and how they impact almost everything in my life. I went through a journey where I had estrogen dominance, I had low T, and I had to work for a long time on naturally balancing my hormones. So I would love to dig in with you and talk about um, just the importance of women understanding their hormones. And really, if they don't have any clue on how their hormones affect other areas besides fertility, what would you say? Uh, Hormones are... Um, something that that word is thrown around a lot, right? People know about hormones. Oh, it's a hormone problem. Hormone imbalance. These are just so uh, just flippantly used in, uh, in in wellness, but around social media and just people's awareness as far as pop culture and pop wellness goes. But the reality is, there are, it's actually really, really serious. And anybody struggling with hormonal problems, it will wreck quality of your life. Um, and these are things that. I have a heart for and a passion for because I see people's lives really kept back from living the life that they want to live. They don't have the energy to live the life that, that they were created for. They don't. They can't engage fully in their relationships. They don't. They so much is wrecked just from this hormone thing that's used, made so fluffy, and, and it's not that big of a deal. Just take this pill, see you later, or it's just hormone imbalance, or it's it's part of a larger, I think delegitimization of women of, well, it's just hormones. And they don't realize actually what the gravity of that really does to someone's quality of life. And you know, if you're doing all the things your doctor's telling you to do, but you're still struggling, I think that we need to ask questions. And just because something's common doesn't necessarily mean it's normal. And many people's every day is fatigue. Many people's every day is hair loss. Many people's every day is stubborn weight gain and anxiety and depression and all this stuff. And they're just pushed aside and told, you're just depressed, take these antidepressants, or you're just getting older, or you're just a new mom, all these well-intentioned, maybe well-intentioned reasons as to how the heck you could be having symptoms despite these quote-unquote normal labs. It's just, I can't settle for it. And my patients can't settle for it. This is just not enough not enough of an answer to just say, this is your lot in life and there's nothing you can do other than taking this pill and see you later. And even if that pill is a a thyroid replacement hormone or hormone replacement therapy with estrogen and progesterone or testosterone, if you're doing all those things, but your hormones still feel imbalanced, if you're doing all these things and still have symptoms, obviously we're not looking in the right place or we're not doing enough so this is what I my main focus. This is what I the people I talk to. I get to talk to them ten hours a day. I talk to people around the world. We actually started one of the first functional medicine telehealth centers. Um, so for over twelve years, I've been talking to people via webcam. We drop ship labs to them, and we get to find these answers. And it's this bittersweet thing where the last thing you want to say is like you have all these things that are wrong with you, but honestly. They already know something's not right with them. They already have that intuition that they're being told there's nothing wrong with them. So if anything, it's this happy cry 
that happens of like, okay, yeah, I wasn't crazy. Thank you very much. And now I can see it on paper. I can be validated why I feel the way that I do. And now I have objective data as a baseline because we have to know what we're dealing with to do something about it. So it's actually quite exciting because it's not shooting in the dark or like, well, just take this pill. I guess this is what it is. We know as definitively as we can know, this is why you feel the way that you do. And it's normally a confluence of factors. It's not just one thing, but it's a myriad of different hormonal, gut microbiome, immunological immune uh, issues that we deal with. So I guess there's a little bit of a tangent, but if your hormones are not working well, nothing's working well. So it's going to impact everything from your head to your toes. And that, that interconnected dance, that sophisticated dance of different systems of your body, our systems of our body are integrated because and from hormones. So there are those little physiological emails that communicate our body. So our gut and our brain and our brain and our, our ovaries, or our brain and our thyroid, our brain and our adrenal glands, all of these things are constantly and dynamically communicating with themselves through hormones. So if those little physiological emails are not working well, our body's not speaking to it to itself. So that can create a whole host of different problems. What have you found to be the most common causes of hormone imbalance so people can can connect the dots there? So the, when we're talking about the endocrine system or the hormonal system, the main things that we're looking at here is the hypothalamic pituitary axis with the endocrine system. And we're really understanding, we want to look and understand the whole pathway of that hormone's physiology or that whole hormone's metabolism, how it's utilized in the body, basically. So in functional medicine, my job is to really follow that, that hormone's whole communication line with the rest of the system. So there can be a breakdown at any point of that, that hormone's metabolism pathway. So for example... And when I let me just talk about all the main hormones that we look at: thyroid hormone, testosterone, estrogen, progesterone, and cortisol. Those are the main ones. So for the thyroid, just using that alone as an example, it starts with the hypothalamic pituitary thyroid axis, or what is my brain saying to my thyroid? So we measure it that basic thyroid test that everybody gets on their basic GP or basic endocrinologist. They run a TSH. Thyroid stimulating hormone. That is a pituitary hormone. Actually, it's not a thyroid hormone. It's what's your brain saying to your thyroid? So, so thyroid stimulating hormone, as its name implies, it's when the brain is saying, hey, thyroid, work more. If the thyroid hormone, if TSH is up, it's inversely proportional to typically to thyroid hormone function. So if a high TSH would denote low thyroid function, probably, if the brain's speaking properly to the thyroid. And then from that point, your body reduces T4. It gets its name from a tyrosine protein and four iodine molecules, and then has to convert T4 to T3. Uh, and that's activating the thyroid hormone. And then 80% of that conversion happens in the liver, converting T4 to T3 or activating that thyroid hormone. And 20% of that conversion happens in the gut. And then the T3 has to get onto the cell receptor site. So there's a thyroid receptor site. So to answer the question, what is the main cause of hormone problems, it's so different for so many people because there could be a breakdown with the HPT axis, meaning there's hypothyroidism secondary to pituitary hypofunction, which is just a big 
wordy way of saying your brain's not speaking to your thyroid. So for those people, their TSH is going to look pretty normal to actually hyperactive. It's going to be a normal to low TSH because the brain's not actually speaking to the thyroid. But when you run a full thyroid panel, all the thyroid hormones are low or close to being low. They're, they're either on the low end of normal or they're low. So that's a brain-based issue, not a thyroid issue. And then you go to the next step of the thyroid hormone physiology metabolism. It's, it's the conversion. Is the body converting? Is it activating T4 into T3? So is that a liver issue, a gut issue, or both? Is there a nutrient deficiency that inhibits the conversion? Like the body uses selenium, for example, to convert T4 to T3. So is that the problem? Mm. Uh, and then it goes to, I mean, obviously the gut, it can definitely inhibit T3 conversion. So we have to look at gut health there. And then the cell receptor site, there can be something called high reverse T3. So basically the body converts T4 to T3. Too much of this reverse T3, which is kind of this unusable analog of T3, it can act like T3, but be unusable. So it actually occupies the receptor site, blunting the thyroid hormone. And then what's the most common cause of low thyroid function in the West? It's autoimmune thyroid issues. So it's Hashimoto's disease and Graves' disease. So that's when the immune system actually thinks the thyroid hormone is a virus for bacteria and is attacking it. Something called molecular mimicry, sort of mm. a, a case of mistaken identity. So that's just the thyroid hormone, <laughs> let alone all the other hormones too. The point is seeing TSH above 4.5 on a lab and saying, you know, you have a thyroid problem, take this thyroid replacement hormone, see you later. We don't ever ask the question in conventional medicine. It's never asked, why do you have the problem in the first place? It's not a synthroid deficiency. Like, why do we have the problem in the first place? And that applies to estrogen, that applies to progesterone, that applies to testosterone. It's these things don't happen in a vacuum. So when we're 30 years old or 35 years old or 45 or 55 years old, why is this thing happening? And why wasn't always there? We, we just aren't curious enough to ask the question. Well, the conventional medical system is typically not curious enough because they're trained to diagnose the disease and match it with a medication. So it's not that the doctor's being nefarious or evil. It's not that at all. They're trained to do their job actually really, really well. But once they've given you that medication, that's their tool in their toolbox. At that point, it's superfluous because they ran all the labs. They've given you what they've given you. Now, at that point, it's basically, see you later. I mean, they've exhausted all the options and that's typically where we come in. And, and with someone who's been on birth control, like how would that affect their test results? And what have you seen, I guess, for supporting people getting off birth control? Because we have a lot of women in our community that are now wanting to get off birth control after being on it for 10 years, 15 years. Um, what would you suggest for them? Wow. I, I, it's, it's definitely a precipice that I'm meeting a lot of people at this sort of crossroads of deciding what they should do, alternatives to contraception for them. Um, yeah, it's an individual decision. It's certainly not a blanket statement. Some people decide to stay on it. Uh, and it's just they want to get their body as healthy as they can be despite being on it. And you know this, I mean, but statistically, a lot of women are given birth control not for contraception. It's for other reasons. They just were given it as a teenager. And that was their, this band-aid for a wide variety of different things like skin problems or heavy periods or who knows what else. Be tons of different reasons girls are put on this. And they're just taking it every day because they, they were told to take it. Uh, so I, I hear you. I think there's a whole generation, a whole epidemic level of, of women that are kind of realizing, well, I was given this when I was way too young 
to even decide if this was right for me. And there was really no informed consent. They weren't given the pros and the cons of this. There wasn't even a conversation. It was just take this pill. It'll, it'll solve your problems. And they want to get off of it now. And I'm part of that conversation a lot. Well, it's an individual decision. And I think it's good to uh, run labs and see where your, your numbers are at. Look at your goals. What are you trying to do? And then let's work in conjunction with their prescribing doctor to reduce and eliminate this over time or uh, however we decide is the best route for them. And then it's let's rehab the body. Let's look at really rehabbing the body and getting their, their period back. Because for some people, it can, it can take a long time. I see a lot of women with amenorrhea. They've been off the pill for weeks or months, sometimes even years, and their periods never come back. They're part of that larger post-birth control syndrome spectrum that's out there where things are not fully balanced back out yet. And understandably so for many of these people, they've been on these things for years and it's modified the way their their brain is speaking to their, their endocrine system. Mm. What's um, amenorrhea? A lack of period. Okay. So mm. it's, it's, a, it's no period. So it's, these are women in their 20s and 30s and 40s that don't have any period. And birth control is part of that story, right? When, they're com- when they come off the pill, they have, have that sort of post, post-birth control syndrome issue where they're not having the period from that. But we have to look at that rise of autoimmune issues too. And that's part of that conversation too, because it's not just birth control's fault. We also have to look at people's immune systems are stressed out and they're in a state of chronic inflammation and their gut-brain axis is not very healthy, their connection between their gut and brain. So their body's uh, in this sympathetic fight or flight state. That is not a parasympathetic resting, digesting hormone balance state. So I, I look at the post-birth control stuff and work on detoxing and clearing that out and working on gut health and all that stuff. But it's also dealing with the inflammation and the autoimmunity too, because I haven't seen anybody with great looking hormones, really balanced, optimal hormones when their body is stressed out. And mm. I don't just mean mental, emotional stress. I'm meaning like the autoimmune inflammation stress too, the physiological stress. The mental, emotional stress is important as well. But when I say stress, sometimes people are like, I'm not stressed, I'm fine. But it's the physiological stress. What's going on in their gut, for example, or their immune system that's stressing out their body, that's impacting their hormones. Right. Um, one of your posts on Instagram was just referring to how everybody calls this the the digital age. And mm-hmm. you had brought up that this is like the autoimmune age. And I'd love to to dig in there because I mean, I feel like everyone I know has like an autoimmune issue. Mm-hmm. So I would love to talk about that and, and perhaps what you feel brought that on. Not that it's one thing, but a conglomerate mm-hmm. of things. Sure. So these are the the people that I definitely, they're the, my biggest patient base, the people that I have a lot of compassion towards because this, I mean, hormonal problems are part of this conversation too. Because when you look at Hashimoto's disease, autoimmune thyroiditis, you look at endometriosis, adenomyosis, these are all hormonal problems, but they're autoimmune in nature. So this convergence of autoimmunity and the endocrine system, the immune system and hormones is something that I see a lot. But autoimmunity as a whole, it's autoimmune. It's when the immune system's attacking the self. It is uh, of epidemic proportions in our world today. It's estimated that 50 million Americans have an autoimmune disease and millions more are somewhere on this autoimmune inflammation spectrum that I write about where 
people have to understand like when someone's diagnosed with an autoimmune disease, it's about four to 10 years prior to that diagnosis is when things were brewing on this autoimmune inflammation spectrum. It didn't happen overnight. Mm -hmm. And many people find themselves on the spectrum, but they're not bad enough, quote unquote, to be diagnosed by conventional medicine. So there's three main stages on this autoimmune inflammation spectrum. There's silent autoimmunity, meaning if you ran labs, you'd see some positive markers, but the person feels pretty much fine. Stage two is autoimmune reactivity, where a lot of people find themselves in, where they have autoimmune components, to their case, they ha- they know something's not right. Their doctors say things like, well, it looks autoimmune and you may have a positive ANA or a family history of autoimmunity, but you're not going to fit all of the mainstream conventional boxes to be told you have this ICD-10 code and you're labeled with this autoimmune disease. Stage three is autoimmune disease. That's when someone's bad. something is bad enough when your immune system is destroyed enough of its of the body for mainstream medicine to call that that, which on years, on average, it's four to 10 years to get to that point. Mm. For example, you have to have 70 to 90% destruction of certain parts of our body, whether that's our adrenal glands with Addison's disease, our thyroid with Hashimoto's, our gut with ulcerative colitis or Crohn's, our myelin sheath with MS, four to 10 years. You have to have significant destruction for mainstream medicine to call it that. So to answer your question, why this is happening, researchers are really exploring this epigenetic genetic mismatch. So our genetics haven't changed, according to researchers, in 10,000 years. So our DNA, our genome has remained relatively unchanged. Yet our world has changed very dramatically in a very short period of time. So it's this evolutionary mismatch, this epigenetic genetic mismatch our genes living in a brave new world of like, what the heck? They're being exposed to things that we've never adapted to, whether that's our foods we're eating or the foods we're not eating, our soil depletion of the food that our food is grown from, uh, our air quality, water quality, uh, exposure to toxins, uh, chronic viral issues, which have always been there, but now are being triggered like never before because of all these other stressors. Um, and, and chronic stress and trauma. So all of these things are the confluence of factors, these, these perfect storm of variables that can trigger the genetic predisposition for autoimmunity that the gene predisposition has always been there for 10,000 years, but is being awoken like never before because of this perfect storm of epigenetic factors. So researchers estimate that a third, one third of this autoimmune puzzle is genetics, meaning typically you'll see family members have it, you'll have a family history of thyroid problems, or yeah, my aunt had ulcerative colitis, or my uncle had MS, or it's something like that. But it's being triggered because of this onslaught of stressors, whereas some women, some people in the family that don't get autoimmunity. Um, but it's that perfect storm that what can trigger that, what can awaken that genetic predisposition. So this is the people that I, I talk to to get them answers on why they feel the way they do, they do. And then let's do something about it. Let's start really understanding the pieces to your health puzzle, um, which there's no quick fix for these things. It takes time, but it's one that there's so much agency we have over their health. It's amazing how resilient the body is. If you just give it give it what it needs and give it the chance to, to find homeostasis again. Mm. A lot of folks this year have maybe experienced for the first time, or maybe they've, they've struggled with it, but depression and anxiety. And I'd like to talk about how the body is like in communication with the brain and 
what factors that we have in our control outside of medicating ourselves that we can lean on to for lean on for support if you have depression or anxiety symptoms. Yeah, that's a great great topic. It's an important topic because many people this is part of that silent epidemic, right? We're talking about all these really important things because these are all silent. They're all silent on the outside. People look healthy, they're really struggling. I mean, being having struggling with autoimmune issues is pretty isolating. To look quote unquote normal and get through the day, but really be isolated because no one gets how you feel the way that you do, and it's super hard to get out of bed. That same applies to heart hormonal problems. It's super silent to be struggling with these issues, and people say, "Why? What's wrong? Like, why can't you get it together?" But they're really isolated because they just they 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 feel like their body's not their own. Like their body's turned against itself. In some ways, it has. When you talk about inflammation and autoimmunity, the body has turned against itself. And then mental health issues super important to talk about because it's part of that same group of people that are isolated. In the West, we like to separate mental health from physical health. Like it's so common, right? It's it's a mental health issue. And we use that so casually that we don't understand that mental health is not separate from physical health. Mental health is physical health. Our brain is part of our bodies. And I know that's like common sense, but people like to separate it somehow. And it all trickles down to you know, if you have an injury, if you have a physical health problem, there's no problem. You go to the doctor and no one blinks an eye at that. That's just normal. But when you go to anxiety, depression, it's just like buck up or you're just, you're just a hypochondriac or you just are a little down, like quit complaining. It's like there's, there's the separation and realizing, no, there's something going on with the brain physically that needs healed that needs supported, mm. that needs optimized. And it, it's so uh, interesting because it's, it's trickled down from the research, seeing the brain as immune privilege. That was the old thought. The brain was not subject to the immune system, that the brain was not subject to inflammation, that, that it was anxiety and depression was just some obscure neurotransmitter imbalance. And now what we realize is that that the brain is actually has a very much an active immune system. And most of our brain cells are actually glial cells. And the microglial cells are part of the brain's immune system. When imbalanced, again, just like systemically, balanced inflammation is really important. It's part of our immune system. It fights viruses, it fights bacteria. It's a good thing. But when there's hyperinflammation or inflammation out of balance or chronic inflammation, this is not good. This is those microglial cells then become an assassin destroying neurons. And it's part of what researchers are really exploring. They recall it the cytokine model of cognitive function. Cytokines are pro-inflammatory cells. So it's research in the scientific literature looking at how inflammation is impacting how our brains work. How does inflammation impact mental health? So uh, all of these things like anxiety and depression and fatigue and brain fog are in fact inflammatory in nature for a lot of people. And of course, there's mental, emotional components to these things, but it's the bi-directional relationship between our thoughts and emotions and situations and our physiology, like a stressful work environment, a toxic relationship, a loss of a loved one. That stuff impacts inflammation, but conversely, Underlying gut issues, hormonal imbalances, toxicity issues, nutrient deficiencies, that physiological stress 
will raise inflammation levels up in the brain or can raise inflammation levels up in the brain that researchers are saying, this is the physiological component to anxiety, depression, and fatigue. Both sides of the coin have to be addressed to see sustainable change. And that's why the statistics around mental health medications, things like antidepressants, they're really uh, kind of poor. There's really poor outcomes for many people. They're doing the, taking the drugs that doctors are telling them to do. And they may see some change, but they don't, a lot of people don't see sustainable change. And they know intuitively this isn't everything. It may take the edge off. I hear that all the time, but it's not really, I don't feel like myself. I don't feel ultimately because ultimately nobody is sick from an anti, nobody has depression and anxiety from a medication deficiency. I'm not anti those medications. Some people need to be on them. Some people, it's, they're served by those medications for a time. But our question is, why do I have this problem in the first place? Mm-hmm. And what is your most effective option that causes you the least amount of side effects? Those medications have their place. I'm certainly not anti those. But the long-term questions we should be asking, why do I have this problem in the first place? Is there a time when I can get myself to deal with those root causes so my doctor can look about reducing and eliminating those medications. Mm. The Eastern and Western medicine that you've been kind of referencing, so do you do you marry the two? Can you just briefly explain how functional medicine works? Because I think, you know, in the time that we're living in, it's really exciting because I, I do feel like I'm I'm hearing more and more about functional medicine. We've, you know, we've been to functional medicine doctors and just treating the body as a whole. But I can imagine that there are people listening right now that maybe just grew up going to traditional Western medicine doctors, maybe are influenced by their family or friends and just kind of like scared to even explore the other aspects of treatment. So can you just briefly explain what it means to be a functional medicine doctor? Sure. Well, functional medicine, in my mind, the the short answer would be it's evidence-based integrative medicine or evidence-based complementary medicine. I don't see it as being Eastern medicine. I really, I don't know, I see it being completely Western medicine. I really see it as being what is the most effective option that's causing the least amount of side effects. That's really the short answer on that. Mm. Uh, and it's the old archaic thought was it was us versus them. It was alternative versus conventional. That is really doesn't serve a person. It should not be this or that. It should be both and. And what's the best of both worlds is going to serve this person? What's the best of both worlds is going to better their life? Instead of being so tribal and so God complex as physicians or people and thinking they have to rally against their tribe, it's that's so old. It's that people want to feel better. And it should be, we are all, we all should be on the same team of getting this person feeling better. So to me, my agenda is not my own ego. My agenda is not like, this is the one way that everybody should do it. It's like, okay, what moves the needle for this person? What gets their labs looking better? What, let's hear them out. But they're the ones going through this. Let's hold space for them and actually hear their experience to learn from what they're going through mm-hmm. instead of being on autopilot and saying, nope, let's take this, see you later. That's going back to that delegitimization that I think that's going on here, that many women know there's something not right, but they're told, nope, you don't fit into that box. Just take this. This is the box that you're in. Uh, we are not serving people in that way. So functional medicine, a, a deeper discussion on this is that we interpret labs using a thinner reference range. So anybody that's listening to this right now, they'll know they get their biomarkers from their doctor, and then they're compared to this reference range. 
this X to Y interval of numbers, we get that reference range from a largely a statistical bell curve average of people who go to that lab. So if you go to Quest or LabCorp or your doctor's labs, you'll see that reference range will vary from lab to lab. Well, who are the people that are predominantly going to labs? They're people with health problems. So there's a lot of people that know intuitively this is not normal. And they're told, yep, the labs are fine. You're just depressed. You're a new mom. Or you're just getting older. All these things. But what they're unintentionally being told is you're a lot like the other people with health problems that you're being compared to. And comparing you yourself to people with health problems is no way for you to know how to feel your best. And so we're looking at a thinner range within that larger reference range. So we're looking at the functional range where your body is functioning the best. That's where we get our name, functional medicine. So where does vibrant wellness reside? So that's the first thing. The second thing, we run more comprehensive labs. So we're looking at... It's based on the health history, but we're getting multiple labs perspective to see things like microbiome issues or chronic viral issues or hormone imbalances and detailed tests. So we, I, I, we talked about the thyroid. You can't just hang your hat on a TSH. You have to run a full panel, total T4, total T3, free T3, free T4, thyroid antibodies, all that stuff, reverse T3. That's just the thyroid. We look at all these pieces of the puzzle. What? Because it's not just... Rarely is it just one thing. We're like, that's my thing. And if I deal with that magic bullet, I'll have all my problems solved. The body's so interconnected and there's upstream and downstream communication lines that need to be addressed. So we want to look at it from an evidence-based perspective, but beyond the basic stuff. And then we realize we're all created differently. We're all You can have 100 people with fatigue or 100 people with hair loss. And what's driving those symptoms for one person isn't necessarily driving it for the next person. So I could give you a myriad of different differential possibilities based off of that check engine light. We know the check engine light's on. We know the fatigue is there. We know the weight loss resistance there. We know the hair loss is there. But why? And the idea that this is all the same and everybody gets the same pill for the same diagnosis code, we are way more complex than just that diagnosis code. You are way more complex than just your symptom. So that symptom is just the check engine light. So that's a, that's a longer winded answer what functional medicine is, but it's just, it's it's finding out what are the pieces of the puzzle. And then we use food as medicine. We use natural medicines. We use medications when needed. Um, and we use lifestyle changes and out-of-the-box stuff, advanced stuff that you're not going to get from your conventional doctor that we're willing to explore. Love that, Brit. For um, just to go back on the inflammation piece, can I just want to get specific on, is there types of inflammation? What is inflammation? And what are some things that are causing inflammation that we maybe aren't completely aware of? Yeah, so inflammation is inherently not bad, right? It's part of our immune system and it, it's used again, like hormone imbalance so flippantly, but it's inherently not a bad thing. We need healthy balance inflammation levels. It's inflammation thrown out of balance, this forest fire that's burning in perpetuity. That's the issue. That is what's associated with autoimmune conditions and hormone imbalances and digestive problems and mental health issues, anxiety, depression, fatigue, all that stuff has chronic inflammation in common. So then the question is, yes, we see the chronic inflammation and you can substantiate this on labs. Like you can run high sensitivity C-reactive protein or homocysteine or other inflammatory markers. And you look at PubMed, there's tons of research looking at these inflammatory components to all of these things that I mentioned. But then we have to ask the question, like you just suggested, 
well, what's causing the chronic inflammation in the first place? So we have to ask that question, like what are the disruptors of the immune system that's driving this insidious chronic inflammation? So it's a wide variety of possibilities. So it's a lot of the times it's, it starts with food as being a component to it. It's certainly not everything. Food is not everything. And I think that's probably a good thing to mention uh, with your audience and anybody's, uh, anybody that's listening today because there's so much food information out there. Most of my patients have their food down pretty dang good. Like they're eating better than most people. They're eating way better than most of their family members. They know all about this wellness stuff, but they're still struggling. They're doing all the things, but they're still struggling. So at that point, like what else is going on here? But we definitely start with food. And if someone hasn't cleaned up their foods, then food is an amazing tool to modulate the immune system and calm inflammation. Every food we eat either feeds inflammation or fights it. Every food, there's no benign, I'm doing nothing for your physiology food. So it's my job because of bioindividuality, we're all different, even healthy foods. What works for one person may not work for the next person. And so you may be doing all the things when it comes to food, but it may not be just because something's better than the standard American diet doesn't necessarily mean it's optimal for you. So it's my job to look at optimizing that specific to where you're at at this journey. So where you're at now on your health journey it will not be what you're doing forever and ever. As we're healing your body and getting you to a place of resilience, your food medicine plan will evolve with your wellness rising. So that's what we look at. But the natural medicine protocols we we lean into as well and other out-of-the-box stuff. Uh, So food, we have to look at chronic infections. These things would have always been there, living in symbiosis. They would have been living in harmony with our immune systems in the past. Things like viruses, things like even mold many times, things like parasites, even um, bacteria, they would have been living in harmony with our body for a long time. We evolved with these things. But now our immune system's already stressed out because of all the other stuff that these things are growing unfettered in the body. They're not like things like Lyme bacteria, for example. Borrelia burgdorferi, Lyme bacteria and co-infections would have lived in harmony with us for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. But why do we see the rise of things like Lyme disease and co-infectious Lyme like never before? It's because our immune system, it's stressing out an already stressed out immune system. So that's why you can quantify Lyme markers, to use that as an example, you can quantify that in some people and they have no symptoms. They're fine. The bacteria is living in their body and they're fine. And then some people, that Lyme bacteria will trigger an autoimmune disease and chronic fatigue syndrome and ravage their health. So we have to understand the terrain of which these things are stressing out the immune system. So we look at chronic infections and we look at hormonal imbalances, of course, too, and deal with those because hormone imbalances will drive inflammation levels up um, because it impacts your immune system. Uh, Cortisol, for example, cortisol is what's known as an endogenous immunosuppressant. So it actually lowers inflammation levels. Cortisol is not inherently bad. Just like inflammation, it's Subject to the Goldilocks principle. You don't want too much of it. You don't want too little of it. You want it just right when you need it. So cortisol is demonized. It's like, oh, cortisol, it's bad, right? It's stress hormone. Well, it's context matters here, just like inflammation and your gut microbiome. It's about balance. And um, many people, are their hormones are out of balance and that's throwing off their inflammation levels too. And then we have to look at stress and trauma as well. Trauma from our past, current stressful life events, those things will raise inflammation levels up too. And then sleep and all this mm. stuff. I mean, we look at all these stones, like what are the stones that are most likely to have something underneath it? 
everyone's stones are different. Not everybody is going to have the food stone. Some people, this food stone is a small thing. It's like not a big factor. They've got it down. For some people, it's the chronic infections they have to be focusing on. For some people, it's stress and trauma they should be focusing on. So it's not myopic. It's actually really um, multifactorial. Mm. On, on the sleep piece, we've been having more conversations around rest, recovery, sleep. Mm-hmm. Can you just briefly give us like... <laughs> what the body is doing when we are getting that optimal amount of sleep, what is able to repair, restore, and recover? Yeah, it's it's something that in our culture, we all know it, right? It's one of those flippant statements again. It's like, well, we know, yeah, I need to get more sleep. They don't realize that it's not just a luxury. People say like jokingly, I'll sleep when I'm dead. The reality is that sleep is not a luxury. It's a mandate on our health. And just one night of poor sleep, one night research shows that it spikes high sensitivity C-reactive protein. One night of poor sleep will drive up inflammation levels up in your body. Because your body, why is that? It's because your body's constantly in this fight or flight state. It's never repairing. You need balance. You need to start up regulating and supporting the parasympathetic, supporting the resting, digesting, hormone balanced, recuperating, uh, reparative state. Uh, so throughout the night, you need that to repair. There's the, your brain is being cleaned. There's a lot of autophagy pathways or cellular recycling and renewal pathways. All of the body's repair mechanisms, they're at their best through the night. So if you're not allowing the cleaning crew to do their job throughout the night, you're going to be left with a lot of debris and junk and inflammation and d- dysfunctional cells living throughout the day because they weren't repaired. The cleaning crew never could do their job throughout the night. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I love the cleaning crew analogy. <laughs> That's a good one. Um, with that is, you know, I think about fasting too. I, when we're talking about like autophagy and the cleaning crew, I think about fasting. And I know you've talked, you know, about that as well. For people, I guess, I just want to explore fasting a little bit further because there is the part of me that is, has like the programming around like if you fast, it's can lead to like eating, disordered eating. So mm-hmm. what do you say to people that are interested in fasting? Do you have any warnings for it? And what are the benefits? Yeah, it's a wellness tool that can be used for good and be abused. Just like almost anything, exercise can be too. And to me, it would be similar to that. It's like, well, is exercise bad because people can abuse it? It's like, oh well, yeah, no, it's just using it wrong. With any way of eating or anything, there are people with disorder, a history of disordered eating, should speak to their eating disorder specialist, their doctor before they're doing anything like that. But I would say that to really any diet change in general, any food change, they should be in, they should be with an eating disorder specialist and talk to their doctor that specializes in this stuff. But with that said, the way that I advocate this tool of intermittent fasting, it's, it's actually the topic of my newest book. It's called Intuitive Fasting. I want people to actually learn the art of intuitive fasting and intuitive eating. And that's so easy to say that on like social media. Oh, I'm, a fa- I'm an intuitive eater. That sounds nice. And maybe that works for you. But when someone's in the throes of hormone imbalance or autoimmune flares, tell them to eat intuitively. It's like, is it intuition or is it angriness? Is it intuition or insatiable cravings? Like stress eating is not intuitive eating. So I want people, I called the book intuitive fasting. I want people to get to that place, but they have to put in the time to allow their body to actually hear the still small voice of their intuition. Because when the body is has inflammation, like we've been talking about that, 
or hormonal imbalances. We've talked about that too. Both of those things are this proverbial noise physiologically. There's a lot of noise going on in the body and people know that. Like that racing thoughts, the ruminating thoughts, the imbalance, all that stuff is noise. They can't even hear what their intuition wants. So a way to start to recenter yourself and calm that noise and reset your body is through intermittent fasting. It's an amazing tool to use. Just like food is medicine, fasting can be medicine too. Hippocrates, the father of modern medicine, you know, every doctor takes the Hippocratic oath. He said, let food be thy medicine and medicine thy food. He also said all disease begins in the gut. I don't know how he knew all this stuff before all the science substantiated it. but uh, And he also used fasting for his patients. So this is not a new thing within medicine. This is really a return to Hippocratic truths, uh, Hippocratic oaths at which medicine was founded upon. Paracelsus, also called fasting. Paracelsus was a, another father of modern medicine. He was known as the father of toxicology. He was also known as the Martin Luther of medicine, which I think is kind of interesting, like this reformer of his time in Switzerland uh, in the early 1500s. He called fasting the physician within, which Mm. I think is a powerful phrase. It's like, oh, wow. Going back to that epigenetic genetic mismatch, our genetics haven't changed in 10,000 years. So it's an awesome way to reset our body to be more in alignment with what our genes would have adapted with. So it's decreasing this chasm between genetics and epigenetics. It's allowing our genes and our physiology to find that rhythm that is our birthright. Many people have lost that rhythm because they were so divorced from this huge chasm that's separating them from them feeling great. So I want people to reclaim that for themselves, but they're not going to be doing that. And I agree with you fully. fully. I think it's, it is, uh, needs to be talked about. Starving yourself. Having an eating disorder disguised as a wellness practice is not what I'm an advocate for. And it's not really intermittent fasting at all. It's not about chronic caloric restriction. It's not about binging and purging. This is about flexible, measured, balanced intermittent fasting, where you're just doing little gentle fluctuations in how you eat and you're still eating amply. You're still enjoying food that's healing, that's nourishing, that's nutrient dense, that's calming to the body, but you're doing it in very strategic ways. But when you do that, and the way that I advocate it for in, in, uh, intuitive fasting is to cycle through these bigger eating windows and tighter ones and open back up. So these vacillating, ebbing and flowing fasting mm. and eating windows is a great tool that I've used for my patients for a long time to start to gain metabolic flexibility. Metabolic flexibility is the secret here because that allows you to actually have proper hormonal signaling have proper inflammation levels. So it's in balance because metabolic inflexibility, like being a sugar burner, hangry, irritable, inflammation, hormone imbalance, that is the death of intuition. You'll never know what your body truly needs because you'll be craving that food that's going to actually add to the fire of inflammation. Mm. But when you calm things down and reset these things, the body is so beautifully resilient. When you allow it to, to find its center again, you'll know intuitively, you'll truly be able to eat intuitively. So it won't be a social media post that sounds nice, but how the heck do I do it? You actually can operate from that place of grace and lightness. It takes time. It's not a quick fix. But when you put and give your body the chance to repair itself, it will do it. That physician within will work for you. Mm. And does it vary men to women? Do you recommend it more for men or more for women? And how does how does that decision, how is that decision made? Well. Yes, there's always considerations between men and women and differences. 
the way that I wrote intuitive fasting, it is born out of my clinical experience in seeing patients. So I put all the nuanced stuff of how you tweak it. Mm-hmm. The tweaks are all through it. So right. you, for example, women have higher kiss peptin levels, which is a signaling molecule that makes them more sensitive to longer times of fasting and longer times of, of ketosis, which fasting will put you in a state of ketosis. So we're not fasting our way out of a poor diet, first of all. We're really focusing on foods that complement the fast and the fast complements the food. So it's really mm-hmm. part of that, that amalgamation of both, the duality of both. But uh, women do better with more cyclical approaches. They're not fasting the same deep fast like every day for a month because they have this beautiful dance of estrogen and progesterone that men don't have to take into consideration. So I recommend more of the vacillating cyclical approach for women and they do really, really well with it. And especially more clean carb cycling days where they're focusing on clean carbs to support progesterone, to support thyroid conversion, all these things we're talking about. But men can, need, should probably do less of that, but the women should do more. So it's not about overgeneralized, broad-sweeping statements and say, well, this is bad for women. Well, context matters. How are you doing it? Because just like workouts, they're not all the same. You can do different workouts depending on how what works for your body. I see this flexible intermittent fasting plan, the way that I have it in intuitive fasting as this proverbial yoga class for your metabolism. Yoga is tough at first. And you have to get good at it. And I suck at yoga. But like the more you do it, the more you're going to get better at it and you're going to stretch and contract your metabolism. So uh, it's like saying somebody's like sore from working out, so working out's not for them. But ultimately, it's just a matter of training your metabolism to get there. Um, but yeah, there's tailorings for, for women, of course. But honestly, the book is geared more towards women anyways, because mm-hmm. that's my main patient base. So that's who I wrote it for. Beautiful. Love it. Can't wait to read. I know. Mm-hmm. Last question for me. I loved the post that you had about um, you can't heal a body you hate. And mm-hmm. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. That is the cornerstone of my work. It's like I talk about this silent epidemic of autoimmune issues, hormonal problems, brain health issues. Like these, my heart breaks for these people because they, they are struggling and on the outside, they look normal, they look fine. And there's a lot of shame, there's a lot of obsession born out of real life experiences because they're like, what the heck? And you mentioned disordered eating. Orthorexia is a major problem within our industry of this disordered eating around healthy foods. And you cannot heal a body you hate. You cannot shame your way into wellness. You cannot obsess your way into health. And but yet that is what unintentionally, most of the time, it's kind of the it's kind of the energy around the conversation. And especially when you've had an autoimmune flare and you know, hey, this foods are like my enemy now. Like I don't even know what food works for me. And then that orthorexia is actually triggered by real life immune, inflammation flares. So I get it. I understand where people are at. But ultimately, as we're healing the physical stuff and functional medicine, I'm teaching my, pe- my patients how to start healing their relationship with their body and healing their relationship with food because all of this stuff whether you're talking about intermittent fasting, talking about certain ways of eating or anything when it comes to wellness, all of that stuff is, should be predicated on this isn't about being arduous or punitive or like all dogmatic. Oh, this is the stuff I can't have and I should fast and it's so much and more fast is better. It's like, no, 
why are we even doing this stuff? We're actually should be doing this to improve your life, not to be a source of punishment. So all of these tools that we use in wellness, all the tools that I use in functional medicine should be an outpouring of realizing the valuable creation that you are. And that's what I've seen over my years of clinical practice is the genesis of sustainable wellness. It's the people that have that transition. They may not be there when they first meet me, but they start having this aha moment that, whoa, like I love feeling great more than I miss that food that makes me feel really lousy. I love feeling so great that I will just intuitively operate from this place of knowing what my body needs and knowing what my body doesn't need. And that's that grace and lightness that it doesn't happen overnight. It's certainly a journey. It's a physical, mental, emotional, spiritual journey for people. But it's one that when you start seeing that unfold and that awareness rise in somebody, it's not a diet anymore. It's not a fasting anymore. It's not exercise anymore. It's just integrating feeling great in their life. And mm-hmm. it just happens intuitively. So you can't heal a body you hate is something that I say a lot because it is an ethos of what I do in functional medicine. But it's a place as of getting to a place of intuition. Mm, beautiful. Um, last question for me. Coming to the end of 2020 into 2021, I feel like this year has been... Um, just a an onslaught and a barrage of of medical focused headlines mm-hmm. um, for obvious reasons, and I guess you know I'm trying to feel into my question because I just you know what I'm hearing you say throughout this conversation is that intuition is um, treating your own body because not all bodies are the same, and I just feel like. It's really hard with media and the way that they, you know, put out information to necessarily bypass this fear that we're being fed and actually make decisions that are right for us. I would just like mm-hmm. love, you know, in closing as people, you know, step into this new year um, and hopefully, you know, with a lot of hope, you know, any thoughts and or suggestions when it comes to... Um, their own health amid this crisis. Mm. Yeah, that's really true. And um, I'd love to shed some light from my perspective on what I'm seeing here, talking to people online and about their health is ultimately we live in awesome time, right? We have amazing advantages and we live in such an awesome time of, of access and um, conversations like this. And of course, we have a long way to go when it comes to access and affordability when it comes to these things. But I think we're making some awesome ground of, of democratization of these conversations. Because when it was our parents' generation, our grandparents' generation, it was like, well, if a guy with a white coat said it, like that's the way it was. And it's like, oh no, if this, uh, the news said this at five o'clock, like that's what it is. Now there's all these interesting conversations, alternative viewpoints that people can decide for themselves whether they want to pick it up or not pick it up. It's having agency over your life. I think that's awesome. But at the same time, it can be overwhelming for somebody that doesn't feel good and doesn't know what to believe. Um, so I, this is what I would say. Find voices that resonate with you. Find, find voices that are well-respected in the space that you're trying to look into. Um, and then 
uh, I would say at the same time, go for alternative views that maybe you don't necessarily agree with and listen to them too, to have well-balanced viewpoints. Um, but then it's having your own regulatory checks and balance system for yourself to say, I'm going to unfollow or I'm going to turn off voices that add to my stress and anxiety. And we need to be our own editors when it comes to the things we're feeding ourselves because we have so much technology and so much information and so many different voices at our fingertips. It's a blessing, but it's a curse. Same time, this double-edged sword of endless vortex of conflicting information, it's doing us no good when it's too much and it's adding to our stress and anxiety. So what I would say to people is to be your own advocate in this way. And if some social media account or some channel uh, is making you feel anxious and worried and dread, and it's it's not adding to your quality of life, then unfollow it. You may be able to go back to it later on. But look, there's so much information out there that sometimes it's information overload and it's too much for the vessel at hand. And when you're not feeling well, especially, the vessel needs to expand and get healthier. So focus on your wellness, focus on your health, you'll find the vessel will expand, meaning your receptacle to receive information will expand. And also the malleability, the flexibility of that vessel will expand too. So you have more resilience, basically. You'll have more plasticity in in many ways. Um, That takes time. So that's what I would say, is to really just focus on things that edify you, focus on things that lift you up, but also things that challenge you. Mm-hmm. And also things that maybe make you uncomfortable, but it's, it's, it's making you uncomfortable in the name of growth. It's making you uncomfortable in the name of seeing yourself in somebody else and having compassion or, or thinking of an opinion that maybe you never thought of before or a viewpoint that you never thought of before. So challenge yourself but at the same time, have good checks and balances because some, sometimes too much of that stuff, you're not challenging yourself. You're just creating more stress and anxiety and shame in your life. So it's that fine balance. It's not an easy answer. We, also, we all have to find that, that grace and lightness. And depending on where you're at, your point in your life, if you're up against tons of stuff in your life, a lot of heavy stuff, your vessel is going to be a bit smaller and that's okay. Like Focus on what you can control. And then later on, you may be able to go back to something that was triggering you before that isn't now. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. Beautiful. So the book is Intuitive Fasting, right? Coming out next year. I'd love to hear more. Yeah, I mean, it is a outpouring of my love of, of my patients. And it's just an outpouring of my clinical experience too. It's how to use intermittent fasting in a flexible way. So it's a four-week plan that I kind of touched on before, but it's there's a... It starts with a bigger eating window and then gets tighter as like a deeper fast. And then we vacillate back out. So these ebbing and flowing cycles of intermittent fast is that variability that worked really well for women. Um, and we're marrying it with the nutrient-dense, clean foods that are very filling, very nourishing. This is not about caloric restriction. This is actually eating good amount of calories, but it's strategically... Um, eating in specific timeframes. So it's as its name implies, I want people to get to a place of intuition and food peace, to actually have an inner stillness and an inner, this is good. This is good for my body. I'm enjoying this. That's sustainable wellness for people. So I'm really excited for people to read it. And there's the beginning of the book is all the health facts and the research about it and what fasting will do for you and what specific types of fasting will do for you. So you can focus on different ones. Um, 
And then the second half of the book is a meal plan, recipes, pretty pictures, that kind of stuff. And um, Gwyneth Paltrow wrote the foreword of the book. So I'm super honored about that. She's intuitive fasting as well. So it's a, it's a cool experience. And I'm, I'm excited to have this conversation with people. Mm, amazing. And, and I know you have a new podcast coming out. Can you tell people when they can expect I and what they do. can expect? It's called The Art of Being Well. Mm. So it's all the stuff we're talking about. It's all right. the stuff. Because like my patients come first. So all the stuff that we're talking about, it's just a ripple effect of that. So the book is are things that I've used for patients for 12 years. Like we've done intermittent fasting for a long time. Mm. This is how I do it. Uh, and the same with the art of being well. It's tough to have longer form conversations sometimes on social media. So it's... Um, I, just like you, you guys know this. This is what you do. You're able to have things you can't have on Instagram yeah. and Twitter. And you're able totally. to have real contextual conversations about things that are important to you. And that's what I wanted to do. So I hosted uh, Goop Fellas before this, which is Goop's first spinoff podcast. So that's on hold right now. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to have this conversation um, and really bring the same energy that I brought to Goop Fellas to The Art of Being Well. But yeah, it's, it's launching in January. So exciting. Thank you so Thanks. much. This was mm-hmm. this was awesome. I appreciate you and your you. work. Um, and for those who don't already follow you, you are on, on Instagram at Dr. Will Cole. Yep. D-R-W-I-L-L-C-O-L-E. Got that Wonderful. real game going strong. I know. Come on. We're trying <laughs> to keep up. The real game is strong. <laughs> Crushing uh, guys, it. Guys, I'm such like an old man at heart. I'm no, like, you're oh, not. <laughs> oh my gosh. Like, I feel kind of ridiculous, but it's a good way to educate people. I love yes. it. I mean, like, especially if, you know, the younger generations are doing reels and TikTok, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, if they're on there, might as well educate them on mm-hmm. the things that we mm-hmm. wish we knew when we were that age. Yeah. Yeah, you and know? you know what? This is a chance for me. Reels are a chance to A, talk about things that I talk about in podcasts or write about it anyways. But it also is a chance for me to to play the like the the nineties R and B that I'm a fan of, yes. or like nineteen seventy-five, <laughs> like all the music that I like. I'm like, I, I can compare functional medicine with like genuine cool jams. <laughs> it's amazing. Oh, we love it. Thank you. Thank you. And um, have a great rest of the year. And thank you. Lots coming in the new year for you. So we're excited to support. Thanks so much. This will thank be coming you. out then. Awesome. We'll see you later. Thanks so much. Bye. 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 Thank you, Dr. Will Cole. You guys can find Dr. Will Cole online at drwillcole.com. And he has a Bop and Instagram. Bop and Instagram. Check him out. And his new book is out. Two-Day Intuitive Fasting. Ooh, forward by Gwyneth Paltrow. Hey, okay. hey. Um, and we just want to thank you. Thank all of our sponsors uh, for this episode. As you know, if you're an OG, we only support brands that we know and love and use ourselves. So we're just really proud to share them with you. Today's episode is sponsored by Go Macro, Earth and Star, Issue and Soul Cycle. So you can see and uh, grab all of those discounts in our show notes as well as on almost30.com. Scroll down and click on partners. Yes, we are so grateful for all of our sponsors for helping us bring this content to you every week. So as a support to Almost 30, it's always great to support the people that support us. Yes. All right. Thanks for listening. We appreciate you and we will see you every Tuesday and Thursday. See you soon. <laughs>